0: Welcome to Dissidents & Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This episode was recorded during the 2020 Oslo Freedom Forum, a global gathering of activists and dissidents united in standing up to tyranny. Since 2009, individuals have come from across the world to educate, share, and inspire at the oslo freedom forum you can watch this programming on the oslo freedom forum youtube page or the oslo freedom forum facebook page
1: uh, we are live i hope that uh, we have members of the oslo freedom forum community with us um it's a pleasure to again be with off even virtually Uh, and hosting a discussion on one of the most important themes of our time on on what is happening behind the scenes, what is changing history now, what certain states in particular are doing in terms of sponsoring the hacking, the wholesale hacking uh, of dissidents, networks, civilians, something that affects us all potentially. Uh, Those of you on screen will be familiar to many of those who follow these themes and who are part of the OFF community. I'm going to introduce them in a moment. Just to say, I'm Philippa Thomas. I've been I've been presenting and moderating for the Oslo Freedom Forum since 2011. Um, very uh, proud to be a part of this community. Um, I'm also going to say, for those of you who are with us, uh, do feel free to put observations and questions into the, the chat and I will try to bring in the themes that you're interested in and the remarks you want to make as well. So even though we are virtual, we are in this uh, together. Um, We are going to hear uh, conversations with three different thinkers and then the conversations between them and with you, I hope. So with me, uh, Iyad al-Baghdadi, we'll be talking primarily about uh, the Saudis, um, but we will also reflect more widely uh, on what he has witnessed uh, I'll introduce him to you further in a moment. Uh, J.N. Buck is going to talk about North Korea primarily. She is founder and co-director of Lumen and has just left us video-wise, but I think is still with us. So we will um, will go back. And Andy Greenberg, a senior writer for Wired, and Andy is also going to be able to tell us something about his most recent book, Sandworm, a new era of cyber war and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous Hackers, he will primarily be talking uh, about Russia. Uh, But as you can tell, there are a lot of themes and a lot of connections that we are going to try to bring together. Now, Jeanne, I think, is possibly dropped off because this is the nature of these things. But I'm going to assume she's coming back. There she is. Lovely. We will. I'm sure this will happen to all of us, including me. So any of us could pick up and host at any time. But let's start uh, with Iyad. Iyad al-Baghdadi, who describes himself as an Islamic libertarian. That's what it says on your Twitter feed. I hope you're still... A Palestinian writer who came to the world's attention and the attention of the Oslo Freedom Forum as you commented, as you witnessed the Arab Spring uprisings and you continue to throw light on dark places uh, in what you do. You are a long-time networker with the Oslo Freedom Forum. We are talking today about how Saudi Arabia, Russia, North Korea are using their influence and their resources to hack, not just their own civilians, but globally. Um, and yeah, we want to talk in particular about the Saudis. What would you say first about what's distinctive about the way they operate in terms of state-sponsored hacking?
2: What's unique, I mean, what's different from other uh, contexts, I guess, is the fact, uh, I mean, if that is the question, it would be that they're not disciplined. Uh, in other words, they're kind of in your face about what they're doing in a way that has not served them very well. But you know, if if I want to zoom out, um, their hacking activity is only part of a network. It's part of a bigger mechanism. So, in order for you to be able to completely dominate uh, an otherwise dynamic public sphere, such as the Saudi public sphere was circa 2014, even before starting with the Arab Spring, really. Um, you, you need not only to take down the influencers and uh, you know control the conversation, but you, you, need, you need to also plug it into a disinformation network. So we see a lot of intersection between their disinformation network and their hacking technology. These things kind of work in tandem. Um, at the same time, you have the state itself represented of course by the leadership and by the foreign ministry, um, you know, giving not just resources but also political capital to a lot of uh, to a lot of these narratives. Uh, in In many cases, this is something that was uh, you know kind of surprising to us, but we've seen it several times. What we see stolen using hacked data ends up on the disinformation network, and then what happens on the disinformation network is later reflected in state narratives, basically the foreign ministry, the state secretary for for, for foreign affairs. Uh, so it's an integrated system there that shows that this is not just—it's uh, not just a tool. In other words, this is a system.
1: So, what kind of information is stolen, and what kind of thefts are most damaging?
2: So it depends who they're targeting, to be honest. So, in in the context of 2014, 2015, so this is when they actually started their, their, their this effort. And to be to be completely clear, the effort does not does not originate only in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in 2011, when we had the Oslo Freedom Forum in 2011, and of course, 2011 was a very, very special year for the Arab world because the Arab Spring was, was, was going on. Uh, one of the, the the most important speakers was uh, Bahraini activist, uh, Maria al-Khawaja. And if people in the, in the community remember, there was an incident where one of the hashtags was taken over by the Bahraini uh, internet, uh, you know, kind of troll farm. Uh, the Oslo Freedom Forum, you know, they, they kind of tried to outmaneuver the Oslo Freedom Forum's own hashtag because they didn't want people to be speaking about Bahrain. This is, of course, in the middle of the uprising or, you know, shortly after the the, the Bahraini uprising. So that's when we see the genesis of their, uh, their they, um, you know, those kind of uh, dictatorships, realizing that there is actually power to social media. Uh, and, you know, uh, your a lot of your personal information and your Twitter app reside on the same phone. so it makes makes sense for them to actually target both at the same time uh, in that information space, right uh, however, in 20, 2012 was the big year because 2012 is when I mean we say that the Arab Spring was like a you know social media uprising and stuff but actually the greatest rise in in the audiences and the usage of social media in the arab region came after 2011, especially in 2012 to 2014. Uh, and in 2012, I think it was the summer, or on July of 2012, uh, Twitter actually put out a press release saying that there's been an increase, I think a 3,000% increase or something like that in Twitter usage from Saudi Arabia.
1: Much of which is very young.
2: Uh, much, exactly. But again, the thing is, when you see a 3,000% increase in a short period of time, you know that a lot of it is bots. Uh, it's it's not it's not all organic. I mean that that kind of increases don't kind of happen overnight, right? Uh, so whenever you see such a big increase, you know that actually the, the government is also involved. Uh, 2014 is when the Saudis attempted. So 2013 was really significant because that's when we see a lot of social media activity manipulated, but also taking down certain influencers. So like they want to create the the, the impression that uh, certain things are popular when they're not, for example, right? So one thing they do is that they have to create fake identities, but also one other thing they need to do is take down actual influencers, human beings, right? Uh, and one of the ways to do that is to track them, hack their phones, um, figure out what they care about, figure out you know what their weaknesses are, and they basically target them. In 20, 2014, I was arrested in the United Arab Emirates and expelled from the country because of this activity. I had a, had an active Twitter account Late 2014 was also when the Saudis implanted a spy inside Twitter, inside the company. Uh, That spy, of course, was later uh, found out by the FBI. Uh, And, uh, you know, the Saudi embassy in the United States facilitated the escape of uh, of a couple people back to Saudi Arabia. So, and also 2013, 2014 is when we know they actually started caring, They they started building the capacity, the hacking capacity in Saudi Arabia. Uh, But really, it wasn't really until 2016, 2017, when we've seen it really crank up to to the point of becoming something that is dangerous, not just for dissidents like myself, but to the world at large. Uh, You know, July 2016, I think think April 2016 is when um, Mohammed bin Salman declared the vision 2030. Um, And that was kind of a harbinger for their direct control of the public sphere. Keep in mind, the Saudi public sphere was very, very active at the time. It was a beautiful public sphere. Um, uh, and, you know, they knew that they had to destroy it because when when people express themselves freely, they kind of liberate themselves from imposed narratives, the narratives imposed upon them by the governments. So the hacking activity, a lot of that happened between 2014 and 2016. 2016 uh, uh, a friend, uh, Mohammed, Ahmed, Ahmed Mansour, who's from the United Arab Emirates, he's a human rights defender who's currently serving a, a, a term in prison in the United Arab Emirates. He was hacked by software uh, that the UAE purchased from an Israeli company, and this is, by the way, a repeated theme. You'll see a repeated theme that a lot of these uh, dictators buy; it. they don't develop the software themselves. They buy it mostly from from uh, from Israel, uh, which is, of course. Um, um, uh, raises a, a, an interesting political question, of course, with all the normalization deals happening right now.
1: Yeah, uh, because, hmm.
2: yeah because all of these—I mean, whether it's Bahrain or or the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia—these are com- these are countries that have been using Israeli hacking and disinformation technology uh, for many years.
1: I'll um, pick up on that in a moment about where the tech comes from and and kind of common sources here to go back on something you said about it was a beautiful public sphere that is being targeted that is being destroyed because one of the things that that hacking does is it, it not only uh, targets and maybe seeks to destroy individuals who are out there dissidents who are known like yourself it not only represses but it suppresses uh, networks and people that are emerging so if it's not safe to go into what was a beautiful space what does a nascent activist in the Saudi sphere do now that you can
2: talk about now it's it's a completely different world right now. So to, t- to take you back to, to the point about you know beautiful public sphere and how in- that intersects with uh with hacking one of the most important things they would want when they if they hack my account for example is that they want to go into my Twitter DMs to the direct messages and they want to know who I'm exchanging messages with. Sure. Because they're very concerned like one of the reasons why they want to hack me is my public uh announcements my public activity on twitter on, on social media and they want to drive the narrative they want complete control of the narrative on social media so it, it's it's like the disinformation aspect and the and the hacking aspect is kind of tied together uh this is the this was the case with uh, with Jamal Khashoggi it was the case with Omar Abdulaziz this was the case with even Ben Hubbard, for example, was writing a book in the, the summer of uh, 2018, uh, uh, sorry, uh, he was he was targeted in the summer of 2018, I believe, uh, or maybe I, I can't remember the date either 2018 or 2019. Um, so, so returning to your initial question, like what is unique about the Saudis? I think it's the systemic element, but also the fact that they're not disciplined in a sense that by looking at the public part, what they're doing, what the disinformation stuff, you kind of, they kind of tell you who they're targeting. And if we know who they're targeting we kind of find out what their plan is and this is this is something that we can come back to because that's how we uncovered their plan uh, their their hack of jeff bezos's fault
1: let's go back to where you had reached which was the provision of hacking technology by the israelis and i want to ask you now about the evidence that lies behind that because i think you're saying not just to the saudis but the provisions that are being made to to other states, like Belarus, for example. But I think, and I know from uh, previous conversations, you've referenced that there's evidence and that there's extensive evidence here.
2: Yeah. And thankfully, I mean, thankfully, Israeli journalists have been doing their job. And so a lot of this, I mean, a lot of what I've mentioned is really in the public sphere. And it was Israeli journalists who uncovered that. So they uncovered that uh, not only have they pushed a part of, uh, I mean, if we're talking about the, the Middle East, we know that they have pushed this technology. Uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, provided this technology to Bahrain, to the United Arab Emirates, to Oman, to, to the Saudis. Uh, we also know that they have had activities in um, uh, uh, in Belarus and in Venezuela. This is all. This is all stuff that's been uncovered by, uh, as I said, by by Israeli newspapers. It's basically out. It's a it's public record. Uh, what's interesting recently is that, you know, like when they hack your phone, um, they're going to get a lot of data and they have like the, the 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 software is called Pegasus. It's made by a company called NSO. NSO is a professional company and the software itself is military grade, uh, which means that it has very advanced uh, methods of uh, avoiding detection. I mean, one of its main jobs is to avoid detection. Uh, what's interesting about... Uh, um, about the recent uh, um, uh, revelations about the software is um, it it self-destructs if you cross into certain countries. So like it's very aware that this is a very advanced piece of software and they don't want it to be captured. They don't want it to be captured by the Iranians or the Russians, for example, and they don't want it to cause a diplomatic incident in in the United States, for example. So if you cross the border... Uh, with an uh, infected device, and you go to certain countries, the the, the device, the, the software self destructs. The software is also very good at hiding itself. Uh, and what's interesting is that they don't need a lot from from you, uh, from from you as a user to actually get into your phone. So they can actually get into your phone even if you don't click on anything. All they need to know is what your phone number is. Um, so as I said, very advanced software. Um, uh, what was re- recently very concerning to us is that, you know, they can steal a lot of data, but they don't know what it means. I mean, this, is, this has been a problem, really, with, especially with the Saudis. They don't have enough analysts, and they right. don't have skilled analysts. So they can steal the information from you. Like, it's gigabytes of information. Like, who's going to analyze it? It's a lot of data, right? And they don't know what it means, and they don't know how to action it. Well, recently, Israeli military analysts have been actually providing that service as well. And this is, again, on the record in Israeli, in Israeli press. So not only are the Saudis getting the, the the software, sorry, getting the the hacking tool, they also don't need to analyze it themselves because the Israelis are doing that for them.
1: I think uh, I can see connections that we can make, which which is about it. Often comes down to this, doesn't it? Resourcing it's it's where you get the basic the software, the hacking capacity, but it's also about the the shared resourcing of intel intelligence analysis. And I think Ayad. We'll come back, but I also want to pick up with our other panelists now. Um, Jeanne, I I see, I don't know whether there's a, we see you uh, now, which is great. And I think I'll assume that if your video disappears, that you're still with us. Um, And I'm going to invite you at this point to just open by telling us a little bit about, well, about Lumen and about what you're doing to reveal the extent of North Korean state hacking.
0: Sure. So i um, just reflecting on some of the things that Ayad had said. And there's some similarities between uh, Saudi's capabilities and discipline or lack thereof and North Korea's. So I'll draw, I'll pick up on those parallels in a little bit. Um, but with Lumen, we are a US based organization and we work to distribute information into North Korea. So it's sort of in the sphere of, it's in the general sphere of information and technology. Um, it doesn't have to do with it does not have to do with North Korea's hacking capabilities or cyber warfare capabilities, which I will talk about in a second. Um, but it's very much aligned with trying to bring um, access to information uh, to North Korean people for to those who choose to consume it. So That's what we are focused on. Um, and so I'll briefly talk about uh, I'll I'll, I'll want to share a bit about North Korea's growing cyber capabilities. Uh, And I'll open with a quote uh, from Kim Jong-un from 2013. And he said, this is a quote of his, this is the North Korean dictator. the cyber warfare along with nuclear weapons and missiles is an all purpose sword that guarantees military's capability to strike relentlessly, end quote. And unlike um, what Iyad said about Saudi's capabilities, North Korea has been very disciplined um, in their cyber and growing their cyber capabilities and they've been investing in their cyber capability since the 1970s. And this is in part because um, cyber strategy it stems from their larger military asymmetric strategy. Um, I won't get too much into the inter-Korean history right now, unless it comes up in Q and A. Um, but ever since that South Korea started to outpace the North um, economically since the 1970s, uh, we saw, um, uh, in parallel, the North investing in their asymmetric military capabilities, mainly in nuclear and in cyber. And it makes sense because um, because it is it's, it's it's a very attractive method for North Korea because as long as the status quo remains as it is, which is that as long as the South Korean Peninsula remains in a stalemate, because technically the Koreans are still at war with each other. And as long as there's a strong military alliance with the South Koreans and the U.S., and as long as the U.S., which is North Korea's um, existential enemy, a sworn enemy, as long as the U.S. maintains conventional uh, military superiority, um, and as long as the North Korea aims to undermine the South Korean uh, state, the North Koreans will be motivated to continuously diversify its arsenal of asymmetric and unconventional methods. Um, they know they don't have a fighting chance, you know, as Victor Cha said, sword to sword, soldier to soldier, and so fighting their enemies, uh, whether it's governments um, or companies that are housed in their enemy state, um, states through conventional warfare is not going to happen. And so, doing so in this unlawful war zone, if you will, called cyberspace, by an actor that's just Known to not follow the rules in general, this being North Korea, Um, they can create chaos and steal information, uh, steal dollars uh, with relatively few resources and um, relatively few of any consequences. Um, And just a fun fact, if you will, um, the North, according to a UN report that came out a little over a year ago, uh, the North Korean regime has accumulated approximately two two billion dollars through Stealing through um, from stealing from banks and cryptocurrency exchanges over the years um, to dedicate towards their weapons of mass destruction programs two billion dollars, and so their capabilities with, with regards to cyber warfare, their personnel is growing and it continues to grow, and so they are um, they are certainly not an equal to the United States or you know some of the other uh, you know over the other great powers, but they are. Uh, not to be underestimated. Um, We can get into the details of some of the things that some of the known um, attacks that they have conducted over the years against state and non-state actors, but I'll kind of leave it from here. In terms of, uh, I just want to draw that discipline point between Saudi and and the North Koreans. They are very disciplined. Um, Some of the cyber warrior I mean, there's different terms for them in in the media, in the the media, cyber warriors, cyber warfare soldiers, whatever else. But essentially, the the personnel who the state pinpoints um, to then train um, to become part of this, you know, their cyber warfare team, they are highly skilled. They're skilled from a young age. Um, They are skilled in the country and the language and the culture that they are assigned to country or the region that they're assigned to and they dedicate their essentially their lot every waking moment um to tr- to to pursue the tasks that they are assigned to and so um, I, I was reading a report recently uh, that came out from mcafee and there were um, some of the senior chief engineers were talking about um just some of the trends that they saw of north korea's hacking capabilities And i just remember the a line from that report saying that the North Koreans are very, very, very dedicated in their pursuits. And so they're certainly not to be under, underestimated, um, which makes them very you know, dangerous in terms of what they are capable and will continue to be capable of doing. It's a
1: pretty grim note in my remarks, but I'm happy to uh, open <laughs> it, it up. It is. And I do want to hear the other's reactions, actually, to, to what's happening here. My My the question I want to get in at this point is: Is really they're extremely disciplined. They're very well resourced in terms of cyber warfare, and so when you think in terms of defensive strategies or or sanctioning, I mean, they don't care. The world's knowing how brilliant they have become at cyber warfare actually is an asset to them too. So, so what what works, or what could work, or does nothing work in terms of stemming this growing? Cyber warfare empire masterminded from Pyongyang.
0: I think it's hard to um, just because we don't know what their next attack service is going to be. It could be an individual, it could be you know a government state um, website or a bank or you know another non-state actor. I think just in general, in you know, beefing up cybersecurity measures from these entities and in all of the kind of known protective measures and defensive mechanisms, great. Um, there's been a lot of sanctions and, and they've I think recently the US Treasury, the US government has seized, I think, 280 cryptocurrency accounts that have been known uh, to basically work on half of the North Korean regime on Chinese cryptocurrency exchanges. And so there's been some, you know, s- slap on the wrists uh, for actors in this space, but nowhere does it, it's nowhere near a point where it's going to sufficiently deter the North from what they want to do. Um, I think that ultimately, you know, this is kind of where I'm quite biased and what I work on often is hit them where it hurts asymmetrically, which is to hit at their the regime's Achilles heel, um, where they're asymmetrically vulnerable, which is um, just making information available into North Korea. It's not an eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of situation here, but ultimately the eroding the internal legitimacy of the system and um, hitting them where it hurts, which is providing unfettered information to their citizens. Is, I think the most powerful tool that citizens and governments alike can uh, do to to respond back to North Korea, not
1: only because of their cyber strategies, but also because it's just the right thing to do. Jian, thank you. I am going to come on to Russia and to, to Andy. Uh, In just a moment, I just wanted to invite from either of you, Iad or Andy, any thoughts on on what we've just heard, perhaps particularly the idea of the way to hit back when you have a very well-funded, very determined strategy.
2: Yeah, I I was really interested in in the point that Jian made about uh, the discipline. By the way... The fact that the North Koreans are disciplined, uh, discipline denotes uh, predictability. In other words, you know what they will and they won't do because you know what their target is. You know their MO. One of the main problems we had with the Saudis is the fact that they're undisciplined. And because they're undisciplined, there's nothing that you can say, hey, that's too crazy for them to do. It doesn't make sense for them to do it. If they can do it, they might do it. In other words, instead of me as, as uh, you know, watching my adversary and thinking what is rational for yeah. my adversary to do in this position, I have to think in, certain, in, in, in terms of their capability, which is much wider than, you know, their... In, their, their uh, uh, I, I can't think what would they do, but what can they do? And that makes it more difficult to defend. Uh, but point taken, of course, uh, if you want to... Uh, if you have a cyber uh, army, ideally, you don't want anyone to even know that you're doing anything. You want it to be completely, you know, uh, y- you want to, to go in, steal information, uh, you know, challenge narratives, et cetera, and leave, and you don't want anyone to know that you even that that, that you even was in their phone in the, in the first place. Or, you know, that, uh, if you have this information output, you don't want people to even know that this is uh, inauthentic behavior. You want people to actually think that this is authentic. Um, so this is the point, I mean, this is the point that kind of uh, – you know, uh, rung in my head, uh, but then there's the point also about the reason why they're doing this. For the Saudis, so for North Koreans, and I think uh, m- maybe maybe you can you can comment on that as well. It seems to me that for the North Koreans, what they're re- really looking after is attack their enemies, disrupt their enemies, and also steal, like get a lot, like you said, two billion dollars, a lot of money. Um, for the Saudis, the Saudis are not really short on cash. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even though they should be they should be worried because, you know, uh, uh, they are running out of cash reserves so that they absolutely do have a problem with uh, with, uh, you know, long term. I mean, at least in the short term, they don't. Um, But for the Saudis, it's really all about legitimacy. It's all about legitimacy narratives because all they want is it's all about free speech in the public sphere because they want to sell uh, a narrative about uh, the state, about Mohammed bin Salman, about the you know about uh, what's happening in the world, uh, kind of selling a story, saying that you know this is this is who this is uh, what the government wants, and trying to create public opinion, of course fake public opinion, to say that this is actually popular. Uh, so it's all about attacking dissidents. It's about the public sphere. It's about uh, it's about free speech. And again, it's again it's in the end it's about a battle for legitimacy because. This is, you know, since 2011, since the Arab Spring uprisings, the entire regional order has had a really severe legitimacy deficit. And it's really legitimacy is the uh, is the name of the game.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of legitimacy narratives that North Korea is pursuing both internally and um, externally. And I can talk more about that. I'd love to um, hear Andy's thoughts as well. I feel like I'm talking a little bit too much.
3: This is such a fascinating panel. I'm so I'm learning a lot, from both of you guys. And and I think what I'm I'm like, it's very interesting to hear these ideas about discipline, uh, because to me, there are several different ways to define discipline for a cyber power. There's the sense of like, um, to what degree are they willing to be caught? And it seems to me that actually all three of these powers are somewhat willing to, you know, they're they're sloppy. They're 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 not disciplined in the sense of trying to prevent attribution which is this this kind of age-old problem in cybersecurity. can you trace the source of a state-sponsored of a sophisticated hack um for russia north korea and saudi it seems like they're they're willing to allow attribution to leave their fingerprints on an attack if it allows them to achieve their goals so i think that in that sense all three of these countries are not disciplined in that way um, but i think also what they have in common maybe in a different definition of discipline is that rogue cyber powers in a sense, like um, each Saudi and its willingness to attack human rights defenders um, and use these unprecedented zero-day exploits, unpatched vulnerabilities and software. North Korea and its state-sponsored cyber crime is totally unique. I mean, there's no other country in the world that I know of that is stealing money, using hacking on this scale. Um, but for Russia, Russia is a rogue cyber power in the sense that they are carrying out The kind of cyber war that we and I have been covering cybersecurity for like more than a dozen years, we've always dreaded the day when state sponsored hackers would turn out the lights to an adversary country would um, shut down medical record systems and hospitals or paralyze hospital systems, or, you know, destroy all of the data in an enemy's government agencies. And now all of those things have actually come to life. They've all happened just in the last several years and all actually at at the hands of one hacker group, one group of Russian hackers uh, known as Sandworm. Uh, And I have been following this one group because they are just so much at the vanguard of this one kind of very norm breaking rogue, uh, rogue form of hacking, which is pure cyber war the actual disruption and destruction of an enemy's critical infrastructure and often uh, an enemy's civilian critical infrastructure sandworm um, came onto my radar in 2015 uh, i didn't know the, who they were at the time but i but i um i think as, as everyone in the cybersecurity world did became aware that um a, a group of russian hackers had actually caused a blackout in ukraine um, now, of course, like Russia had invaded Ukraine in 2014, but what became clear as I look deeper into um, this cyber attack on a group of Ukrainian electric utilities that turned out the lights to a quarter million Ukrainians, was that this Russian invasion of Ukraine that um, kind of set off a, a civil war in the east of the country, um, I mean, it's, if you can call it that, it's truly a Russian invasion, and seized the, the Crimean Peninsula, um, that this physical invasion was accompanied by an actual cyber war that had uh, performed targeted attacks against all these Ukrainian um, targets from the media to government agencies, destroying terabytes of data inside of these uh, institutions and really trying to cripple them and culminating in that first blackout. Uh, Then a year later, in December of 2016, they caused the second blackout, this time in the capital of Kyiv. At this point, I could see that there was a kind of escalating true cyber war happening. And that second attack, these sandworm hackers had actually used a kind of custom-coded piece of malware designed to to automate the process of causing a blackout, which is a very scary prospect, because it means they can repeat repeat this. They can swap out parts of the code and do this in Western Europe or in the United States. So I went to Ukraine. and, And at that point, really delved into this Ukrainian cyber war and put together a piece of, for Wired magazine, where I work, about this notion that Ukraine was a kind of canary in the coal mine. If you looked at Ukraine, you could see what you could see the future of cyber war because Russia was carrying it out in Ukraine. They were experimenting, innovating, and showing their capabilities. And just as I published this story, um, which was a, a big magazine piece for Wired, uh, Sandworm, the same group of hackers released in Ukraine a piece of malware, malicious software, called NotPetya. NotPetya was a self-propagating automated spreading worm, and it quickly proved to be the most destructive cyber attack in history. It took out, um, it would spread using a combination of a stolen NSA hacking technique um, and some other open source tools and hijacking the software updates of this Ukrainian accounting software, all kind of combined in a very clever way. This worm spreads across Ukraine instantaneously took down 300 companies in Ukraine, by some estimates, um, many hospitals across the country, uh, 22 banks, every government agency, but then spread, of course, you know, worms, cyber attacks do not respect national borders, especially when they're self-propagating in this way. So it spread to the entire world from Ukraine um, and, and immediately took down Maersk, the world's largest shipping firm, Merck, the U.S. pharmaceutical company, FedEx, um, causing each of these companies essentially destroying their entire networks, causing them hundreds of millions of dollars in damage each. So when you add up the effects of NotPetya, ultimately the the estimates would put the damages from NotPetya at ten billion dollars. By far, the biggest. I mean, nothing we have seen. Nothing we have seen. Before or since has even come close. Although I'm sure June would point out the WannaCry, this North Korean cyber attack did uh, cause like four billion dollars. But this was this was ten billion dollars, and it also took up medical record systems across the United States. This very underreported phenomenon, uh, and I think in, endangered people's lives. So uh, I, I don't mean to, to to I don't want to downplay what's um, Yad and Jun are, t- are talking about, which is I think. Um, often more surveillance focused, information warfare, cybercrime, and in North Korea's case, sometimes cyber warfare too. But um, what I've been focused on is this kind of actual use of cyber attacks as a direct weapon against an adversary, and it can have terribly destructive effects. And I think that um, what I've tried to call attention to is the fact that Russia now has this capability, they're willing to use it, and it will be a factor in every every, uh, kind of question of how do we counter Russia's influence in the world they have this weapon now available to them and they're willing to use it
1: you just froze at the most intriguing point and you're back um and and I think I want to get the reaction of both of our other panelists to what you're saying but first I I have to say to you election 2020 we're what five weeks away
3: Right. Uh, And we have already seen signs that, so to spoil the ending of my book, where I kind of like try to figure out who Sandworm is.
1: Yeah,
3: um, They are a a unit of Russia's military intelligence agency known as the GRU. The GRU, of course, was also involved, Sandworm was involved, but also another group within GRU called Fancy Bear or APT-28 um, was what were the ones who were responsible for the hacking and leaking operations in the 2016 election cycle. Fancy Bear was the one who broke into the Democratic National committee, a Congressional Campaign Committee and the Clinton campaign stole a bunch of emails and leaked them out in this very, you know, chaos inducing way that I was of course designed to help elect Donald Trump. Um, and I think helped, you know, succeeded, contributed to his success. Now we're seeing signs that Fancy Bear has returned, um, that they are probing, uh, I think, according to Microsoft, they just said in the past weeks, they've seen signs that Fancy Bear, APT28, um, another part of the GRU, is probing many political targets again, um, campaigns, political parties, political consultancies, there's no doubt that they are uh, at least seeking to do a replay of 2016 where you know possibly still in the last minute in October surprise will dump a bunch of um, emails stolen data maybe fabricated stolen data even onto the open internet to try to sway this 2020 election but we have to we have to be aware that there is the potential for more that sandworm this other part of the GRU in 2016 they were the ones who hacked into the the US state's board boards of election um, they had access to um, US voter rolls, essentially. They do far more direct attacks, as I was saying, they are capable of causing blackouts of destroying data on mass. So, you know, if I, I don't want to try to predict what Russia will do in 2020, it's always losing game kind of they're very unpredictable. But, um, but if if there is going to be a more direct attack on the 2020 election, and it will be probably from the sandworm group, and it could include any of the things that they have, they've shown us they're capable of in Ukraine.
1: You just come in with a question which you can possibly all see um, here. There are several questions coming in, but just this one that's up here from Roger Huang, because I think this is a good time for it. He's saying, look, it's clear states stock up. Zero-day exploits that they use for targets. What can individuals and organizations do to protect against this, if anything? I mean, we are talking partly on a level of of principles and 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 government and and uh, you know top-down action, but here as a community, we're talking as individuals and loose networks and sharing intelligence ourselves. Um, what, Andy? What I mean, given the might and the discipline and the organization of groups like Sandworm. Is there anything
3: we can offer? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Sandworm um, has used zero-day vulnerabilities, and when they do, it's—I mean—the zero-day vulnerability is kind of like a um, a trump card, you know, in in this game of cybersecurity. The, the whole idea of it is that there is—it's—it's it's a secret vulnerability. There is not necessarily any defense against it. And that's with a, a tool like Pegasus, as Yad said, like um, to hack an iPhone. Um, there was no defense against that and, uh, and it was you know an entirely secret um, secret tool that could not be defended against sandworm possesses these as well and i think that when it when we're talking about or when we're, we're talking about hacking powers of, uh, at this level um, if they they do possess zero days and i i don't want to say that we can't defend ourselves and I'm, I'm happy to talk about some some ways of defense but when we're talking about um, these sort of undefendable attacks, the answer I've always believed is to hold these nations accountable, to um, to inflict penalties against them. And, and with Russia, uh, part of the story that I'm telling with Ukraine is that they were not held to account for what they did in Ukraine. They attacked Ukraine with impunity for years when they caused the first ever blackouts When they um, even released NotPetya, this worst cyber attack in history, um, they were they were not actually punished. It took nine months for anyone to say that NotPetya was even a Russian attack in a in a a Western government to impose new sanctions. There was never any any consequences for the blackout attacks. Uh, So I believe that at least as a one necessary step is that we need to impose sanctions. We need to indict. The hackers responsible indict the generals who are giving their orders. We need to uh, try to create a system of norms to deter them. To create a kind of Geneva Convention for cyber warfare, um, we 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 don't we don't necessarily have defenses against these weapons themselves, but we can def- we can defend ourselves by with deterrence with yes. a system of rules.
1: And I think just as as your 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 video is going a little bit, Andy, I want to pick up on that because you're talking about both. Yeah, if you can't if you can't defend yourself directly immediately, uh, there's a legal route. There's there's, there's sanctions. Uh, there's legal pursuit, but there is also the reference to legitimacy that you've all made, which 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 these um, regimes want. There's the creation of narratives and counter narratives, and Iyad, I, I wanted to come back to you for your thoughts on 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 that, the nature of 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 possible defenses and and is it mostly about getting narratives into the public sphere
2: so this this kind of brings me to the point about the difference between saudi saudi arabia uh, saudi arabia on one on one hand and north korea and russia on the other hand and this is kind of the sad story here because russia and north korea are opposed to the west while saudi arabia is very much dependent upon the west it's a very close ally of the united states and of western countries so if there is a regime out of the three that we're talking about that is most susceptible to pressure that that you know like if enough western countries say stop what you're doing they will have no no choice but to stop it would be the saudis just like andy said there hasn't been enough pressure uh partly because you know their attacks the S- saudis saudis are not attacking infrastructure uh such just as the russians are but they're attacking people like me basically human rights activists, dissidents, uh, you know, politicians, etc. However, I would have you, uh, you know, there, there is uh, a lot of information that is yet to come out. I mean, hopefully, if we have a peaceful transition of power in the United States uh, about how far the, the, the Saudis have corrupted. They have, uh, you know, uh, they, they've had activities within, Saudi, within uh, uh, the United States. And of course, Jeff Bezos was one case. Uh, and we have no reason to believe he's the only case of someone who has been hacked by the Saudis for political reasons as so an American. Um, so going back to how to defend yourself as an individual, um, like I said, I mean, given, given the how advanced the software is, given how, how resourced these people are, how determined they are to get into your phone, to be honest, frankly, if they're very determined and they keep trying, sooner or later they're going to they're going to manage to. Uh, but it's very dangerous to be cynical. I mean, sim- simply because it's difficult to protect yourself does not mean it's useless and you shouldn't do it. Uh, rather, I mean, we have to think of defending ourselves not as um, a matter of eliminating the possibility of, 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 of their success, of basically being hacked. We can't really eliminate it, but we can make it so difficult then that they're likely to make mistakes. And making, I mean, if, if you basically design, of course, uh, someone who's high risk, and I assume that I'm talking to an audience over here within the Oslo freedom of community, a lot of people are high risk and there would be very good reasons for you know their dictators or for their governments to try to get into their phones. Um, there are experts to seek. There are companies, if you have an organization, there are companies whose job is to defend you, you know, digitally. Uh, but there are also things that you can do whereby you make it like it's kind of like instead of opening the door for the guy to for, for someone to just walk in, I can make it such that they have to actually climb three stories up and then you know get through this door and then get this get through this door in order to get into that that place where I don't want them to be. And every time I, I force them to take an additional step is a is a, is, a, is a you know is a chance for me to catch them for them to make a mistake. Or to leave a trade whereby I can actually know what what, what happened. The most dangerous situation would be they get in and out and you have no idea that anything happened.
1: Gian, I would like your take on this as well as somebody who's who's high profile and presumably targeted, whether you know it or not, that, that sense of what you can do to defend yourself and those in your space. I
0: learned a lot from um also freedom forum communities over the years actually and the people i've met um including iod and andy over the years uh of just the newer tools that we can use to protect ourselves online um also we are individually as strong as the weakest link and so having two factor now i am mean, sure everyone knows this but, you know, having two-factor authentication on only a select number of your online accounts, you know, isn't probably the best. Um, just kind of being very, very um, diligent about securing all you know, online accounts and so forth. Um, it is pretty alarming at times. Whenever I and a lot of my colleagues um, in the North Korea space and just like this general human rights space, we get alerts on Chrome or other um, internet browsers. It'll say like you know, Google or you know whatever company. Has identified state-sponsored attacks trying to compromise your online accounts. So it's alarming, um, and you know, after a couple seconds, when that kind of fright goes away, I realize that you know, there's so many more people who are doing a lot more, a lot more dangerous work, uh, where the risks to them are so much higher. So it's kind of worth the fight here. Um, but other things, I think, is just. In addition to keeping ourselves um, educated and um, protected online, it's also important to keep on knowing what these governments are capable of so that we are aware of what we are dealing with as individuals
1: and entities. Quite a few questions um, coming in now. And there's just one I want to to about who can or should join the defense, as it were. Uh, a question saying, what role, if any, do you see for tech and or social media companies to combat state-sponsored hacking or disinformation capabilities? I'll take that one briefly.
0: Um, This is not a comprehensive response, but there's a, this is just, it comes to mind. Um, North Korea has been engaged in PR campaigns, if you will, to try to engage the international community uh, more recently in their controlled messages to try to promote this idea that North Korea is a normal state, that, you know, the, that they're just like you and me and people there live freely and they, you know, they're, they're just, uh, they're a normal state. And they've been, they've been experimenting with all sorts of um, online social media accounts on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook. Um, and the most and one of the most prominent and well-known camera presenters, in you know, for people who follow this space, is a late young woman named Una, Una, and she's English speaking. She she's she, I mean she's she's a human, of course. She's like a normal. She's a person, but she is a mouthpiece of the North Korean regime. But unlike, Yoon um, Hee, or as many of you know, as like the the, the pink lady who's very. You know, very harsh in the way she presents her um, messages as a newscaster. Unlike her, Una, she speaks in English. She seems very relatable. She cracks jokes. She'll have these on-camera, impromptu interviews with North Koreans walking behind her. Um... And asking them questions about you know what they like to do in the free time. Did they panic shop during you know COVID? Even though there's zero COVID cases in North Korea, compared you know according to the regime and so forth. So they're engaging in all sorts of these kind of um, very seductive online campaigns to co opt the international community to believe their messages and so going back to the question of what can tech companies do some of her accounts and some of the other kind of related social media accounts that has been traced back to the north Korean regime has, they've been um, temporary, b- temporarily blocked or shut down. Now, I don't know if that is the right answer. I mean, individually, yes, I would like the North Koreans to not, the regime to not have a voice on social media, but I don't know if that's the right answer because that's not a sustainable solution. Um, but I think that there is a responsibility for the companies at least flag what is a state-sponsored channel and what is a as uh, a regime-sponsored um. Uh, program online at the, at the very least so that uh, the viewers can know what exactly where exactly these um, content and messages are
1: coming from and i would like to ask andy and i to to come in on this idea of of the responsibility of media companies especially social media companies here but just bringing in an, another question which is relevant to this i think uh, an observation unlike in a traditional warfare attack where it's easy to see what state power is behind the attack As you've noted, with cyber attacks, it's often initially less clear. And so in terms of sanctions or consequences, it's difficult to undeniably prove who's responsible. So so in terms of of sanctions or even naming and shaming, it's kind of it's kind of where you focus your efforts, isn't
3: it? Well, I think I think to to address this, like this is what I was saying is is known as the attribution problem, and there's a kind of I think it's almost become a myth in cybersecurity that the attribution problem means that you can never know who you can never know for sure who is at the who is the source of an attack, and I think many countries are like like Russia, um, and and Saudi Saudi and North Korea still are kind of operating as if they will not as if that holds as if they will not be Um, identified as the source of attack. But the truth is that uh, we have a kind of, I mean, we have a very vibrant cybersecurity private sector that does threat intelligence that I talk to all the time. They usually are able to tell me who is the source of a cyber attack based on forensic clues, based on tiny mistakes they make, code similarities, infrastructure similarities in their attacks. Um, But that is and they will give me the evidence, like and I often publish it. it's this we don't we don't have to take them on faith, but the truth is that that Western intelligence agencies uh, like the like the NSA um, absolutely know who is the source of these attacks because they have you know forensic powers and the ability to hack the hackers. They're often sitting kind of over the shoulder of these attackers as at, you know um, as they carry out their attacks or um, just afterwards. They they have amazing visibility in, into the perpetrators of these attacks, and they know the answers. I I think we depend on them. We need them to more often publicly attribute these attacks to not only say what the answer is, but I, I would like them much more often to, to give us the same kind of evidence private sector cybersecurity intelligence firms do, so that there is no doubt, so that... Um, you know, in the US after 2016, for years, about half of the country refused to believe that Russia had actually hacked the Democratic oh. National Committee. Um, and that was in, f- in part because uh, our intelligence community, our governments in the US failed to make that case, failed to show the public evidence, much of which you know, I could see myself by talking to the right cybersecurity industry sources. So that needs to change. They know the answers. I often know the answers. Um, we need to make, like, our governments need to help us make this public case so that those perpetrators can be held accountable, and everyone agrees that we, we know who is responsible.
1: But that makes me think about Khashoggi. It, it makes me think about, you know, the U.S. knows what the Saudis are doing.
3: But, I, it's a very good you know, case. Uh, uh, point out, um, <laughs> like, the, with, uh, with Saudi, there is, of course, like, a political... Unwillingness to point fingers at Saudi. We, you know, the U.S. has this very complicated and quite nasty, you know, partnership with the Saudi government, um, especially in the Trump administration. The Trump has often also, of course, been unwilling to point fingers at Russia, and that, in some ways, is even less, you know, understood. It's stranger, more unique to the Trump administration. Um, But uh, the fact is that that on all of these things, on Russia, even on North Korea, the U.S. government has not properly understood its role in using its unique ability to attribute, identify, and hold accountable the perpetrators of these attacks.
1: Ayah, can I bring up with you then, and this is is a a point where I want to bring you back in, also looking at one of the questions we've got coming in and from Natalia saying, what about uh, other governments demand or demands from governments to impose stricter export controls on these technologies sold to facilitate human rights violations by repressive regimes you know this this is a a potential um field of action that is is often not utilized for political diplomatic reasons
2: yeah so i'm, I'm going to comment on two issues so i'm i'm going to go to uh, natalia's question in a bit but i want to comment on uh, on the platforms and what what their role is uh, and in this case of course the most important platform when it comes to Saudi Arabia is Twitter uh I think Twitter uh, I think Saudi Arabia has one of the world's highest penetration rates for for Twitter in the world i'm not sure what the recent numbers were but I think uh you know it, a few years ago uh it was something like 27 you know 27 percent of all Saudi citizens have uh, Twitter on their phone um Look, there is there is another key difference here between Russia uh, and North Korea on one side, and the Saudis on the other side. Uh, North Koreans do not use Twitter. Uh, it's not exactly an app which is widespread in in uh, in in, uh, in North Korea. Uh, I'm not sure about Russia, but I'm not sure whether Twitter makes a lot of money in Russia or not. I I, I don't think it does. On Saudi Arabia, the, the situation is different because Saudi Arabia has a big online population and there's always this calculus, even on the on the part of the platform. Uh, you know, if we strike too hard, we're going to lose this very big market. And, uh, you know, um, it's this is, kind of, of course, this is a question that needs to, be, to go to the platform itself. I know that Jack Dorsey is going to be speaking tomorrow. But then, you know, one question I would feel to Jack Dorsey if I had the chance, it would be, you know, In in December 2015, the FBI went to Twitter to tell them that Saudi Arabia had planted a spy. They had had recruited an engineer who works uh, within the company, uh, a Saudi engineer, and uh, he was passing information, and he hacked as many as 6,000 accounts uh, on behalf of the Saudi government. Six months later, in June of 2016, Jack Dorsey was sitting in a private meeting face-to-face with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, I believe that this was in Riyadh, what did he ask him? Did he bring it up? Why did he continue to engage him? Why did Saudi? Why did uh, Twitter continue to work in Saudi Arabia? It continues to work in Saudi Arabia until today. Why aren't they held accountable when you know what they're doing, what they're up to? Um, so absolutely, the platforms have a very big responsibility. And frankly, even though, I mean, I'm pretty sure we work with a lot of people at Twitter who are very sincere However, there continues to be a problem, and we really need to, you know, like we they really need to engage us more actively, more seriously, and they have to take it seriously because, um, honestly, like you know, like, like Andy said with, uh, with, you know, with, with, with Russia, with the Russians in Ukraine, people like me, people like Jamal Khashoggi, people like Omar bin Abdulaziz, we're in a way the canary of the coal mine. I mean, if they can get so easily, I mean, that's the thing, with, that's the whole idea uh, with, with uh, I mean, the lesson behind the Jeff Bezos hack. I mean, if they can get, get into my phone, if they can get into Jeff Bezos's phone, then, you know, who's safe? Um, but then, anyway, let's get to Natalia's question about, you know, export controls, et cetera, with, with the Israelis. Um, um, I mean, the fact is that NSO is positioned as a private company. Um, but it's not really quite a private company. Keep in mind, if NSO was in it for money and it is nothing but money and this is just a commercial venture, having uh, such high profile embarrassments going over two years, including the the, the the killing, the murder and dismemberment of a journalist, of a US resident in an embassy, I would believe if this was a company and I was running that company, I would actually say, hey, wait, this is this is about time we take this seriously because it's going to hurt our bottom line. Uh, with NSO, it's very clear that this is not just a matter of profit, but it's also a matter of the will and uh, you know and the, the strategic uh, uh, um, insight or benefit of the Israeli government as well. So this is a political question. We should not simply talk about uh, this being simply a matter of the company. It's also like you know it's basically military software, and the Israeli Defense Ministry has has allowed them to actually export the software now uh, weirdly enough the challenge that has come to nso has not come from governments it has come from companies uh they have of course i mean uh, there was a famous exploit that they used with whatsapp whereby you would get uh, a missed call a missed video call and you don't even have to answer it and it will be like an unknown number you will get this this missed video call and that's all they all they've already gotten in i mean um, the, you don't have to answer it, you don't have to, to do anything they're, they're already in. Uh, and it was an exploit and the exploit was plugged eventually. There was another uh, you know exploit again on WhatsApp because you know, the, the, the Jeff Bezos hack, for example, it happened on WhatsApp. Um, so it was eventually you know WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. so eventually it was uh, Facebook that brought a suit uh, brought a lawsuit against uh, against NSO. and this is actually uh, ongoing. Omar Abdul Aziz was also hacked. He brought a lawsuit. Uh, so it's basically individuals and companies bringing up these, I think even uh, uh, Apple, because, uh, you know, NSO exploits a lot of iPhone's uh, capabilities. Also, I think Apple is, uh, is is considering legal action or maybe have, have, have already started it. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it should be governments that push back, but it's companies that are pushing back. And, you know, we don't really normally think of Facebook as a force for good. Uh, but this is a case in which they're pushing back because, again, this is about the safety of their of, of their users.
1: And I look at Chloe's question, which has just come up, Chloe Dyer on the right, about the forces that could be behind companies if they are if they are making the right moves. She's saying, "What suggestions do you have to generate more awareness of these issues among the public? Encourage them to protect themselves against cyber attacks." But she's also talking about education getting robust education in the fields of cyber security and technology you guys talk and raise awareness and shine the lights on what's happening i mean that's what you do uh, but in general i don't know i think i might say that there's a, there's a woefully low level of awareness about what's actually going on uh, i mean i mean I, yeah, I think
2: I think you make an excellent point because I think digital defense—knowing how to secure your phone, knowing what is safe and what's not safe, knowing what is risky behavior versus less risky behavior—I think this should be a part of uh, basic, uh, you know, electronic literacy at this point. I think this is something we should teach in schools. Uh, I think this is something that uh, you know we need to learn. Everyone, not only people who are high risk, of course, people who are high risk. Uh, such as activists etc uh they need more professional training on this because it's part of their work part of their part, part of their uh, uh, you know part of staying safe and keeping other people safe as well i mean keep in mind that i live in norway um and yeah i mean there was of course i'm under protection they you know they want me dead uh, but at the same time it's very unlikely for them to be able to hurt me physically yeah,
0: very, very difficult clear, for them I to want you dead it, because it's probably not the norwegian government
1: sorry
0: just for just for clarification for the audience, it's not the Norwegian yeah, government.
2: The Norwegian, no, the Norwegian. I love the Norwegian government. They're, they're the ones who are, who, are, who are protecting me here. Uh, but the the Norwegian government has put me under protection last year because they received a tip from the CIA uh, saying that I'm I'm a, I'm a target. Uh, that, that there's a plot against me by the Saudis. um So. the 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 fact is that when they want to get into my phone they want to get into my sources who might not be living in a safe country you know i might have sources who speak to me who pass me tips whistleblowers etc who live in Saudi Arabia who live in other countries uh so it's i mean it's 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 far more likely that these people will be hurt than myself Uh, especially that you know i have a public persona i'm a famous person public person etc it's more it's more uh, the cost the, the cost of targeting me is much higher than someone who's unknown. He's simply passing a tip. Maybe nobody even knows. Even his family doesn't know that he's he's, he's contacting me. Uh, so it's not just about, I mean, this is why it's important for activists to to really look at their security. It's not just about keeping yourself safe. It's about keeping the people you work with safe because those people might be much more vulnerable than you are.
1: And Andy, on that wider narrative, I mean, and the sort of stories that you write, and what and what you've written and published on sandworm, for example, what's your sense of of the level of engagement and kind of intelligent understanding of the, of the threat? I mean, we're talking now, and I know those who are tuned into us are are engaged and are educated about this. But what's your challenge as a journalist in this field?
3: Um. I would say that um, just to quickly like touch on what Yad said, like I I, I don't want to earlier I said you know I don't I don't want to um, that we shouldn't become cynical about the inability to defend ourselves, and I totally agree. And I think everyone watching this probably, just by nature of the fact that you're watching the Oslo Freedom Forum, should have Google Advanced Protection turned on, tooth factor authentication for every account that you can. You should use Signal with disappearing messages, which I think is probably not. it's not only encrypted, but it makes your messages disappear so they can't be stolen and used against you by one of these information operations. You should keep your software updated. You should probably use a Google Chromebook, which is very hard to hack. We can raise the cost of these targeted attacks, as Yad was saying. Um, sorry, but, but, the, um, but when, when it comes to Sandworm, these are not targeted attacks on individuals that are meant to surveil them, and it's not like, something where, you know, you or I can prevent this attack by turning on two-factor authentication. These are mass-scale attacks against a country in many cases. The challenge that I've faced in trying to make people aware of this is that I think initially in 2015, 2016, even 2017, people thought that what Russia was doing in Ukraine was only a Ukrainian problem, that Ukraine was, you know, it's this poor like actually um like mon- monetarily poor country that can't afford to um, secure itself that also that if you're not in Ukraine you don't need to worry about these incredibly destructive uh russian cyber attacks because they'll just stick to their sphere of influence and you know i i, I and, and but really ukrainians and a large community of cybersecurity researchers was Trying to raise the alarm, like what's happening in Ukraine is going to happen to us uh, sooner or later, and NotPetya, this this massive worm, proved that um, very concretely. Like um, Merck, FedEx, Maersk, um, so many of these companies, American hospitals, became collateral damage of a Russian-Ukrainian cyber war, and. Um, none of them, in fact, even after that, wanted to talk about what had happened. They didn't want to name Russia. There was this kind of fear of victim blaming. It, uh, it was very difficult to dig out the stories of what had happened to these companies. But this is what I think everyone needs to be aware of on an institutional level, as well as a personal level, that we are you know, we are all in the same position as Ukraine. We are at the doorstep of our adversary on the Internet, and we are all subject to these same kinds of extremely dangerous and destructive attacks. And we need, I mean, it's, it's how to defend against them is, is a, a complicated story that um, you probably could hire a dozen companies to, to, and buy their products to help you. It's, you know, it's a matter of like network segmentation, patching, um, architecture of your network. So, so it's complicated, but I do think that all of these companies have the budget to do that. And they need to understand that they are just as vulnerable as Russia's neighbors
1: wake up call every time we meet you know as participants in any any oslo freedom forum it is even if you study even if you know even if you listen to the kind of speakers that 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 i'm with today it is always a wake up call um we have another 15 20 minutes and i'm just going to make sure that i'm uh checking in on your questions and and do keep them coming alvaro piaggio asks what role does the international community have in combating the hacking capabilities of authoritarian states, is this something the UN or another body could address with an international legal framework? The UN is celebrating or marking it's it's 75 years right now. Any thoughts from our panelists about about whether there is actually a productive role that could be played by a body like the UN?
0: I'll speak very specifically to North Korea and Alvaro, thank you for this question. this is there i think there's something that individuals can do when it comes to trying to combat the hacking the growing capabilities of uh, north korea in particular In 2019 uh, they had their first bitcoin and cryptocurrency conference in north korea um it was about a week long i think over 100 people from all over the world went to a country i think it was about thirty-five hundred dollars. I think it was a two-day, a couple of days of conferencing, and then the rest of it was tourism. Um, all of it, by the way, tourism into North Korea. If you go, it's very much a it's, it's a perfectly curated um, experience that the regime wants you to be exposed to. And so um, there was a lot of noise uh, from nation states, especially the United States, the UN, for uh, people to go to this conference, and people did go. There was going to be another one this year in 2020 at the end of February. And they had a site up, a website up, people were registering and um, it didn't happen. And presumably it was because of COVID related reasons uh, the state does not have, um, they have very, very, very poor public health infrastructure, medical infrastructure you know, to begin with. And so um, it just didn't happen, but that doesn't mean it's not gonna happen moving forward. Um, in 2019, there was an individual, um, Griffith Virgil, who worked for Ethereum Foundation, who was arrested um, at the airport coming back from the conference into the United States. And um, uh, the government put a case against him because he was you know, breaking sanctions by sharing technology information that could be used um, towards the North Korean um, you know, military capabilities. And... You know, I don't think that was a sufficient deterrent for other technologists and people to go to these conferences in the future. And so all of this is to say um, in response to Alvaro's question, what can the international community do in this particular case, when it comes to North Korea, please pressure people. And individuals to not go to these conferences um, in, that are state sponsored by the North Korean regime. They are very excellent at selling ideas. You know, they'll co opt the language that you and I are all very familiar with, you know, and anonym- the importance of anonymity and using technology to uh, boost the regime, uh, a boost of civilian capabilities, and so on and so forth. It's a very seductive narrative. Do not fall victim to that and pressure people not to go. Um, even The UN came out very strongly earlier this year when the 2020 conference was going to take place um, and discouraging people not to go as well, um, saying that this was breaking sanctions, both multilateral and unilateral sanctions imposed on North Korea by the, uh, by the U.S., and those weren't um, sufficient deterrence for the individuals uh, to go. One last point of why these type of state sanctioned technology uh, conferences is dangerous is that, in addition to the mind share that um, foreigners will give, a foreigner land, like, um, what the regime calls uh, people coming out, coming in from other countries, foreigners will give to the regime. In addition to that, it lends the regime incredible legitimacy, both domestically and. Um, internationally, all of these skilled professionals from both Western and non-Western states flying into Pyongyang with their, you know, with their well-dressed selves. Um, you know, some of the top, you know, just very, it, it lends incredible legitimacy that we should not, as, you, as an international community, be lending to the regime. Um, These type of conferences have nothing to do with the welfare of the North Korean people. It has nothing to do with the welfare of the people. And and it has everything to do with boosting the capabilities and the uh, legitimacy of the regime. So pressure people not to go to these conferences moving forward.
1: We've said we've spoken so many times about how Saudi Saudi state is is different. Our our, um, our examples are different. There's also though there's a very very active Saudi campaign at the moment, working through influencers on social influencers on social media to say we're opening up, come and see us. It's a tourism industry thing. It's a we are modern, we are we are welcoming, we are friendly. And there is a genuine debate about engage or ignore. And I just would like to hear your take on that because it's a very determined push right now, and you see it reflected. Uh, in a lot of social media posts that get get a lot of attention.
2: Yeah, they started doing this in twenty sixteen. As I said, this is when they started the whole uh, Vision twenty thirty thing. Uh, initially, the, the 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 targeted audience were mostly local, uh, and eventually it went you know global. Um, they have been recruiting uh, you know influencers, uh, celebrities. Uh, they even got through to some people within our community. I mean, uh, really uh, surprisingly, they. It, when it comes to these kind of narratives, they're actually pretty skilled. I mean, they know how to. They know exactly their market. They know who their audience is, and they know how to play to their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, of course, um, things were kind of going really well for them until the Jamal Khashoggi murder. Uh, I, I remember, uh, late 2017, early 2018, uh, for people like me was a very, very frustrating period of time because we were, sh- you know, screaming our lungs out saying, this is really terrible. This guy is really bad and this is going to end badly. But, you know, there was an, an, an overwhelming narrative. Unfortunately, it's like basically caught up in the whole, uh, certain, you know, prejudiced opinions about what an Arab country can be, uh, what a Middle Eastern country can show, basically a a bigotry of low expectations, let's say, that saying, you know, MBS is the best you can have, you know, don't screw this up, he's actually a good reformer, etc. March 2018, he goes to the United States, he is greeted, he is treated like a hero, he meets with Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey and, you know, The Rock Johnson, and he's treated like a superstar, you know, the thing about dictators is that the more you give them, I mean, the more legitimacy you give them, the more empowered they feel to repress. And so he goes back. I mean, he goes back. Uh, end of March, April, he's back in Riyadh, and immediately he's thinking, "What? Who do I attack next?" And it is in April when he starts this conversation with Jeff Bezos. By May, he arrests the country's human rights activists. All of the, like, basically the women's rights activists uh, end up in prison, including Lujain al hadlul who's in, as you know. Is, is, is a very famous and brave uh, women's rights campaigner. Um, and it's also around the, the same time that they got into Jeff Bezos' phone. Um, so it's really dangerous. I mean, the whole st- the lesson here is that it's very dangerous when you give dictators legitimacy, the more legitimacy you give them. And by the way, they're, they're starved for legitimacy. They're looking for any kind of uh, gesture of legitimization, whether as Jian said about, you know, it's a conference, whether it's, uh, it's a photo op, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, having the leader, you know, host a conference, you know, the G20 is going to be hosted by Saudi Arabia in a few weeks. Um, or whether it is, you know, something as a ce- like a celebrity endorsement or, uh, or, you know, or a sports match or, you know, purchasing a sports club, for example, as the Saudis tried to do with the Newcastle United. Um, it's, it's, it's basically any gesture of legitimization, right? Um, it's very important for us to reject this. It's very important for us to push against it. But it's also very important for us to hold these people accountable. In other words, if there's a celebrity or or if there is a sports personality or if there's someone who is known to repeat these narratives of the Saudis, we as human rights activists, as human rights campaigners, as, you know, know, uh, even journalists who are are concerned about human rights, uh, you know, concerned citizens all over the world, we need to actually make a stand and say... There is a cost. There is a cost to your reputation if you legitimize dictatorships. It doesn't matter who you are, how famous you are, how, how how rich you are, how much you think that you have an audience who loves you, there needs to be a price. There needs to be a PR price. I think you're muted, uh, Philippa. That
1: I was trying not to do that. We are drawing to a close, having heard some extraordinary insights from the three of you um i just want to ask before we give the audience a bit of time before the next session and and to take more in each of you if those who are with us were to take one thing away one question to self something to reflect on what do you want to offer to them i'm throwing that at you and I'm, i'm going to as right. I'll, go, I'll, go, I'll go
2: last so that, you know, so, so that Andy or Jian can have the, the last word. Uh, the fact that this is so tied into the concept of simple free speech, the fact that a lot of what these dictators want really is to silence us, that itself should give us some pause.
1: Right, thank you. Jian, yeah, what would you like those who are with us to consider, to take?
0: I would say that um, the most powerful way, as individuals, to fight back against North Korea's growing cyber capabilities and just their hell-bent um, diet on legitimacy, is for all of us to do our best to um, to do our part in trying to provide information to North Korean people. It hits them. It hits the regime where it hurts. It's the right thing to do. It's 2020. And North Korean people, as well as everybody, um, should have
1: access to information if they want it. Jan, thank you. And Andy, you're asking you to distill things to a thought, but what do you want people to take away from this most of all?
3: Well, <clears throat> I always try to leave people with the thought that, in a sense, looking at this story of Russia's cyber war in Ukraine, that we are all Ukraine, that we all are at the doorstep of our adversary. We're all vulnerable to these attacks. We can no longer treat these... Sorts of um, campaigns of sustained attacks as something that should be carried out with impunity because it's far away. But I think looking at the like looking at this larger panel, in a sense, we are all you know Jamal Khashoggi, we are all Ahmed Mansour, we are all the North Korean defectors that are the targets of the North Korean uh, targeted hacking. Um, We are all these canaries, and we can if we look at those cases and truly, like in an empathetic way, imagine that we could be victimized just as well, then we can learn from that. And we can also, I think it gives us the right mindset to hold the attackers accountable, which is truly the most important thing that I want to, you know, that I want to hammer on.
1: Thank you all. And thank you for the questions. I think we have heard a lot about legitimacy we've heard a lot about accountability and we've heard a lot about the power of narrative and what i have learned again from the three of you today and i'm really humbled to be part of this conversation with you is that even though it is breathtaking to hear about the scope of state sponsored hacking and its rise uh, it's increasing power we are not not defensive that is the message from the Oslo Freedom Forum and this community as a whole. Thank you all three, Ayad, Gien, Andy, for joining this discussion and thank you those who are watching and those thanking us now uh, for the discussion that we've had. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you, Philippa. Bye Andy, bye.